The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic here with Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. Um, and uh, it should be noted that although Jonah has been with the New Bronstein Times for many months, I mean, maybe even longer than a year, it's been a while uh, that New Bronstein Times has been established. It was... Um, it felt good uh, the other night when we were uh, celebrating the uh, life of Miguel Rodriguez, the recently deceased Buffalo News uh, high school sports reporter. Uh, after his wake, uh, a group of us went out and it was brought up among the group, uh, your prior work uh, that you used to do with uh, Bronstein Enterprises. And uh, quite frankly, it had been so long, I I'd forgotten about that. Uh, what, um, what do you think the Bronstein Enterprises legacy is, Jonah? I don't know if that's for me to say. Uh, hopefully it's uh, great sports writing and analysis and shying away from sponsored content and wearing Bill's hats on the television when we're covering the Bill's games. And uh, people should know Bronstein Enterprises still exists in spirit. We've just merged with bigger and better companies to bring more to the audience and more to the readers. And CTBK has helped with that. And we're always looking for more ways to expand and merge and maybe something we could smash together some graham crackers and do something like that. So for those of you out there listening who maybe have some sports writing or communications needs, uh, feel free to reach out to uh, Jonah Bronstein at the new Bronstein times. Um, always looking uh, for uh, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, and of course, CTBK can help you with that. Although we are encroaching on tax season. So, you know, but still uh, CTBK is a, a large firm and can handle all of your business needs. Uh, Jonah, a big part of New Bronstein Times and before that, Bron uh, Bronstein Enterprises, and, uh, and before that, Bronstein Consolidated, uh, is the myriad of sports uh, that you cover. And that has been the Buffalo Sabres, the Buffalo Bills, high school sports, colleges, and uh, we're going to go around uh, the horn a little bit later in the podcast to get a, a, a rundown of, of some of your thoughts and, and some of the things that you've been covering and seeing now that the Buffalo Bills season is over. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to get into a couple of these recent Bills moves. Um, in general, and I guess I'm going to undercut the significance of what we're about to talk about, uh, what we're about to, to discuss um, by saying that I don't think these coaching moves are going to make a huge difference because there has been continuity, but the Bills have lost some brain power. Uh, they lose the assistant general manager, Joe Shane, 
uh, to the New York Giants. And of course, he takes offensive coordinator Brian Dable with him to be the Giants' new head coach. And along that, uh, offensive line coach Bobby Johnson and assistant quarterbacks coach Shea Tierney, they're all off to the New York Giants. Uh, the Bills are able to promote from within. Uh, they don't really feel a need uh, to hire a new assistant general manager. They have enough um, lieutenant capacity uh, already in the front office uh, to handle Joe Shane's job to pick up the slack between now and free agency and then the draft and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I think it's interesting, some of these coaching moves. Uh, Brian Dable, of course, the largest uh, and also the most significant. Uh, he would laugh at that line if he were listening. Um, but um, Ken Dorsey being elevated to uh, take over uh, for the play calling duties, that is significant, obviously, in that uh, we don't really know how much input Ken Dorsey was having on a play-to-play basis during the game. Uh, he is the he was uh, the passing game coordinator, um, and then uh, the Bills hiring Joe Brady from the Carolina Panthers uh, to come in and help out as a quarterbacks coach. He has a lot of experience, a former offensive coordinator. Um, Joan, I don't know as you follow these, if any of any of these are eyebrow raisers for you, or as you've been monitoring these moves, um, your thoughts on whether any of these wrinkles, these losses, these additions uh, and how they may substantially impact the Buffalo Bills or not for 2022? Yeah, I'd have more questions for you or somebody that covers the team and the NFL closer to see if you thought there would be noticeable changes in the way the Bills play or the way they are coached, especially with maybe the change in the offensive line. And I think the only thing that really raised my eyebrow was the move they made at special teams coordinator today, because I don't know if anybody saw that coming or recognized that that was a move the Bills were looking to make. And as far as the offensive coordinator, Joe Brady, well, Joe Brady coming in as a quarterback's coach with offensive coordinator experience and play calling experience, it seems on paper like a real good addition to the Bills' offensive brain power. Uh, in a way, it's an opposite dynamic of what the Bills had with Ken Dorsey and Brian Dable. And it'll just be curious to see how that plays out. And it might go smoothly, and the Bills might maintain – they probably will still be one of the best offenses in the league. But will there be any hiccups in the change in order of operation and play calling and I think the big question I have is, you know, I think I, I don't know if I could say this myself reporting it from my sources, but I think from talking to other people and you and, and this podcast that there were some times when Sean McDermott and Brian Dable butted heads about offensive strategy and Brian Dable being an experienced coordinator who'd worked for a lot of other prominent head coaches and, you know, had experience around in, in the NFL and college football stood his ground and kind of ran the offense the way he saw fit. And I don't know if Ken Dorsey at this stage in his career has the same hammer that Brian Dable had and whether that will be an issue and maybe it will be a positive for the bills that, that there will be a little less tension between those two offices and more continuity and more everybody doing what the head coach wants them to do. And that could be good. And, and some people who prefer a certain aggressive passing oriented style of football might not like the direction that the Bills offense goes in. Ken Dorsey was said to be a hot commodity, and there were reports out there that he had a, a half dozen job interviews uh, lined up and ready to go. 
uh, at the NFL and top college level. I don't know that I necessarily uh, agree with uh, that. Uh, with that, maybe he had, uh, if things fall apart, he had teams that were going to talk to him type thing. Uh, but he was the Bills man, and he wanted to stay with the Bills. And um, you're absolutely right, Jonah. And that is the big question mark for me with Ken Dorsey. I think that he has the wherewithal to call plays. He is a really smart guy. He played the position. He's been around the position of quarterback for a long time. Uh, he has been working with the Bills long enough to have picked up the rhythms and the language of Brian Dable's offense that will help uh, with continuity for, uh, for Josh Allen, who obviously wanted uh, Ken Dorsey to get this job. It is an interesting tug of war, though, when the play calls uh, don't necessarily – um, jibe with what the head coach wants. And yes, Sean McDermott is a defensive minded coach. He came up on that side of the ball, um, but he is the head coach and he did uh, seem to take shots at Brian Dable's play calling, even going back to last year in the playoffs when he refused to run the ball uh, in the first half, uh, of, uh, of one playoff game. And then in certain games this year where, uh, McDermott said he didn't, uh, that he, he thought they should run the ball more. And then in games when they did run the ball a lot, he would say, yeah, I, I liked what we did today. Uh, there were all kinds of read between the lines sentiments, uh, between, um, uh, Sean McDermott and Brian Dable, um, as well as the, the line in the Brian Flores lawsuit about somebody in the new England organization surmising that Brian Dable wasn't happy working under Sean McDermott and Mike the giants organization, the giants, the giants. Okay. And then would have been leaving the bills, whether he got a head coaching job or not. Right. Well, would he consider being um, Brian Flores offensive coordinator with the giants or I'm sorry, would Brian Flores consider adding uh, Brian Dable as an offensive coordinator, if he were to get the job, um, so, yeah, I, I think that um, there, where there's smoke, there's fire in regard to that. Um, will Sean McDermott impress upon Ken Dorsey his desire to run more or to call certain plays in certain situations that maybe Brian Dable uh, was able to push back on because he had more experience and more leverage? Um, yeah, I think that those are, are real, real issues to ponder. And I, I think, too, that uh, the Bills addition of Aaron Cromer as an offensive line coach uh, is interesting. Number one, um, he was the Bills offensive line coach under Rex Ryan. They led the NFL in rushing two of those years. Of course, when you have LaShawn McCoy, that's a lot easier to do. Uh, and the, the, the linemen that the, that the Bills were playing with at that time. Um, Eric Wood and Richie Incognito. And, you know, there was, there was a little bit more of a, um, a run first or a, a running mentality with that group. Um, so I don't know if that's a harbinger of what Sean McDermott intends, but I think it's a good get for the bills. And I'll tell you why uh, Aaron Cromer must be a brilliant offensive line coach. He must be. And I can't tell you that he is myself because, and I've said it on this podcast, on radio shows, whenever I'm asked about offensive line play, I don't know what I'm looking at. Most people don't. Uh, and that's why I talk to people I trust when it comes to offensive line play. People like Eric Wood, who tweeted praise 
uh, at Aaron Cromer or over the Aaron Cromer edition uh, earlier this week. But the reason that I say that he must be a brilliant offensive line coach is the fact that he has gone through a couple of things off the field that would kill most careers. And we've been talking over the last couple of weeks about the short leash that African-American or minority coaching hires get and the number of chances that you get uh, when you're a white coach seem to outnumber it. Uh, In December 2014, a lot of people don't remember this. Well, I'll say the obvious one. The one that the people remember the July 2015 incident right before he began or the Bills began their training camp that summer. Um, Aaron Cromer and his son, Zach, who would eventually become a Bills assistant, um, were involved in um, uh, an incident on a Florida beach in which both Cromers were charged with misdemeanor battery. Uh, Aaron Cromer allegedly punched a minor in the face and, and threatened to kill the boy's family over an argument regarding uh, beach chairs. Uh, the, NF, um, the NFL didn't do anything. Uh, the charges were eventually dropped at the family's request, the, the accuser's family's request. Uh, that's not to say that there definitely was a settlement, but that seems to indicate that. Uh, but the Bills did suspend Cromer for six games that season. Um, but there's an incident that a lot of people forget about. Aaron Cromer was the offensive coordinator of the Chicago Bears under Mark Trestman. Now, Mark Trestman was the play caller, so it was like a, you know, Cromer being the offensive line coach, more like a run game coordinator type thing. Anyway, I don't want to quibble over titles. But in December 2014, um, Cromer was outed as the source of an Ian Rappaport uh, report at NFL uh, uh, network in which Jay Cutler, uh, let me, let me rephrase this because the phrase Ian, Ian Rappaport report tripped me up and made my brain short circuit there a little bit. So <laughs> uh, Ian Rappaport uh, has a report uh, that the Chicago bears are having buyer's remorse over Jay Cutler and his big con- uh, big contract uh, because uh, he's not doing what the, what the bears want him to do. Uh, he's not being, um, he, he's not, he's not worthy of the money and he's giving the offense, the, uh, the coaching staff uh, fits. Well, the source for that was outed to be Aaron Cromer to which he had to make a tearful and emotional uh, apology to the offensive meeting room that he shouldn't have said what he said, that he broke the circle of trust. Um, And the Chicago Tribune uh, quoted two players anonymously uh, when that happened. One player said, it's one of the most fucked up things I've ever seen. And another player called it a fucked up situation. Now, Chicago fired GM Phil Emery, Mark Tressman, and, and Aaron Cromer a day after that season ended. So those are two troubling things. Uh, for an offensive line coach to survive. And on top of that, though, I want to add, and this also lends itself to what Shalise Manza-Young and I were discussing last week regarding minority hires and the Rooney rule and nepotism. Uh, Aaron Cromer has managed to get his son jobs in the NFL. They were hired. uh, He, he, the bills eventually hired Zach Cromer Uh, to be an offensive assistant. And then when Aaron Cromer went to the Los Angeles Rams, they also hired Zach Cromer there. 
Zach Cromer remains with the Los Angeles Rams. I know this sounds like a lot of a lot, but that's that teams seem to put up with an awful lot to have Aaron Cromer be their offensive line coach. I think, like you said at the beginning, he must bring something to the table. He's got to be. He's got to be. He's got to be an Einstein. Well, I don't know about that, but maybe he fits the offensive line coach archetype that the Bills want or that Sean McDermott wants or that offensive linemen want to play for. I mean, I don't know if he's coming in with blocking schemes that nobody else in the league runs and that he's the only one that can get players to execute certain blocking techniques, but there might be something about this personality that that leads to some of these troublesome incidents that also make him a good coach. You know, everybody has their strengths and weaknesses and personality traits. And we don't know everything about every coach in the NFL. And we seem to know these things that have been reported about Aaron Cromer. And maybe that's all part of the package that, that is something. And the Bills should know what they're getting. I mean, he's been here. He's been here with these same coaches. So I think uh, they Sean understand. McDermott could have kept him, though. Sean McDermott could have had him when Rex Ryan's staff. He kept Danny Crossman, the special teams coordinator. And that's not – I don't know the – the granular aspect of Aaron Cromer's departure from the bills. But as I recall, all those coaches were given a chance to interview for new jobs. Maybe he wanted to leave for a new start and didn't want to work with McDermott, but he was available well, when McDermott I wonder, uh, I mean, brought in Juan is, Castillo instead. This back is pure in speculation. Or if you remember, there were some issues with Juan Castillo in the offensive line performance that first year. Absolutely. Also with a different offensive coordinator who might've had some control over who the offensive assistants were. Maybe Sean McDermott wishes he did keep Aaron Cromer, and that could be – and maybe some of the blowback from the lawn chair incident was why he couldn't keep Aaron Cromer or it wasn't a good idea at the time to keep Aaron Cromer. And, and again, I'm speculating on this, but maybe Sean McDermott has long wished that Aaron Cromer had stayed on or that uh, he thought Aaron Cromer was maybe a better offensive line coach than the offensive line coaches that the Bills have had. And – this is the move that he would have wanted to make regardless of how things played out in the meantime. Yeah. I think that on the surface, it's a great hire. It doesn't really lend itself to the culture aspect of things. That's not to say that people can't change and learn their lessons. um, But it seems to be a steal uh, for the bills to be able to replace Bobby Johnson with somebody who's so highly thought of Uh, Eric Wood in a tweet uh, yesterday said that, Aaron Cromer is playing chess while most other offensive line coaches are playing checkers, which is, you know, a saying that is, is mentioned uh, for a lot of people over time. It's not like Eric Wood invented that, but at least it goes to show what he thinks of it. And Eric Wood is not a, a company man in that regard. He would not go out of his way just because he broadcast the bills games to uh, rave about Aaron Cromer. If he really didn't, think that he uh, that he was special. So I, I think that that's a testimonial that you have to pay attention to and the type of player that Bill's fans hope all their offensive linemen would be. You know, if, if Eric Wood thrived and loved um, working for uh, Aaron Cromer, then as a Bill's fan, you have to say, well, I hope they get five Eric Woods out there that uh, that uh, that enjoy Uh, being coached up by this guy and the bills had some issues on the offensive line this season and a lot of us and fans were quick to blame certain players or groups of players for why that was but maybe there was a 
coaching element to why the Bills offensive line underperformed through various points of the season. I think they were playing pretty well by the end. But I think they were playing great they towards the end of the season, which is something, yeah, you can talk about how uneven they were, and that was a it was very troubling for the first couple of months of the season. But, yeah, the last, say, four weeks of the season and the entire – and both playoff games, the Bills' offensive line was not an issue at all. And I think that, um, you know, I would love to get into the weeds about it a little bit with, with somebody in that locker room or on the coaching staff, but – you have to commend Bobby Johnson for the job that he did, at least towards the end, fitting all those pieces together. You had guys out with COVID. You had serious injuries. You had people returning. Um, the idea of, of Ryan Bates emerging from, uh, from almost nowhere from earlier in the season uh, because the Bills didn't want to play him for whatever reason. John Feliciano coming back and being cleared to play but not being reinserted back into the lineup. They found their combination that worked for them um and i'm sure that bobby johnson played a big part in that um but but that's not to say that there weren't unforgivable sins that took place uh, out of training camp um but um bobby johnson leaving but brian dable loved him enough to to bring him to the new york giants with him so um i i think it would have been considered a loss if they couldn't come up with a, a coach like Aaron Cromer to replace Bobby Johnson. And that's just based on anic- the anecdotal aspects of, of what we've seen and who likes working with whom. Yeah. But I do think you, you raised a good point that, that I don't know if you actually really said, but it, the implication was there. And I'd like to emphasize it, that a black coach that had done the things that Aaron Cromer has done or, or that we found out and a black coach with a mugshot and an arrest record and that was known as somebody who was leaking information and kind of got stepped out of line from the head coach and the general manager, probably wouldn't get a second chance in the NFL. Or it would be a lot harder for that person to do that. For sure. I mean, you had your offensive coordinator shit-talking your starting quarterback, the guy that you just signed a ton of money uh, to a ton of money, Jay Cutler at the time was considered to be the future of the Chicago Bears franchise. And your offensive coordinator is shit talking him to the media uh, as a off the record source. Um, I mean, we, we hear stories about it all the time about coaches who like to float things to reporters to essentially stab somebody in the back, you know, get them out of the way so I can get the job type thing. You know, if there's blood in the water, um, Maybe this is combining both the Cutler and the beach chair uh, incidents, but if there's blood in the water, uh, who are the types of people on the coaching staff who would be going to the press or going to the front office or going to Terry Pagula and saying, look, man, this guy's not working out. Uh, We got to move on from this guy. So uh, I think that you're right. A, a, A black coach who'd done that, a black coach who had been alleged to have punched a minor, whether the kid was a 17 year old punk or not, or maybe he was 17 years old in 355 days. I don't know what it was, but to get into a fight over beach chairs um, to the point where the team felt the need to suspend you for six games. um, Yeah. Most coaches don't come back from those things, let alone get to a position where you can ingratiate yourself to say, look, I'll work for you, but you have to hire my son too. I think a lot of people, you go to most jobs and say, 
yeah, I'll take the job, but you have to hire my brother or you have to hire my wife or you have to hire my buddy. They'll say, fuck off. You know, we'll get, the, we'll get the next guy, you know? Uh, so I think it's, I think it's fascinating. I think it's a fascinating uh, uh, storyline uh, or uh, his past anyway is fascinating. When I say storyline, I don't mean that that continues to uh, roll forward and the guy's a, an issue. I just think it's amazing that uh, as we keep reiterating and now I'm becoming repetitive, the, the idea that of who, who gets second chances and who don't and who, who, who don't, who doesn't. Do we know who Aaron Cromer's agent is? Because I think that person deserves a lot of credit for. Uh, That's a good question. Has... I'm, I, I'll look that up. I, I think I may have, uh, I think I may have a file of some kind. Uh, before I do that, uh, I do, I do want to say this about Joe Brady. Uh, and I think that there's a m- myth when it comes to quarterbacks, coaches, because quarterbacks are the most important position in any sport. I think you can argue. Therefore, um, you would assume that quarterbacks coaches are the most important or incredibly um, momentous and um, critical uh, to a coaching staff. And that's really not true. Uh, when it comes to quarterbacks coaches in the NFL, Um, In fact, some teams haven't had them. John Gruden didn't have one. He just handled that job. Kyle Shanahan um, may may still not, but at least relatively recently also was the quarterback's coach while also serving as the head coach. The Bills had no quarterback coach one season. I can't remember which. I think one of the seasons when Tyrod Taylor was the quarterback, but there was a year when they went without that position. Well, that was maybe it was EJ Manuel under Doug Marone. I think they had okay, Nathaniel was Hackett was the offensive coordinator and really wasn't the in. Yeah, they didn't have a quarterback's coach because Hackett was up in the press box. And I remember asking Doug Marone, well, who's going to handle EJ Manuel on the sidelines? If he's having a problem, like if he's struggling or he gets into a bad vibe or he gets, you know, throws a couple of bad balls you want. And, and Marone at the time said that's not a big deal. And then I think quickly they, they realized it was a big deal because there was nobody down there to talk to their future franchise quarterback or the guy that they hoped, you know, their first round pick anyway. Are the bills um, losing anything? Sorry to interrupt you there. Are the, without Davis Webb, you know, he wasn't a quarterback yeah. coach, but he seems to function yeah, a little the, bit in that role. That's the thing. So that's why, that's what I was going to get into with Joe Brady. There's a support system there for your quarterback. Um, you talk about, uh, you know, racehorses, you know, the movie Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit had a problem uh, and they needed to put an animal in, in the stable with them. And they'd put a little goat in there with Seabiscuit to settle them down. Well, I think Davis Webb was the little goat. Uh, things like that. Shea Tierney was somebody that um, Josh Allen really liked to work with. Uh, he was the assistant quarterbacks coach who's now off to the New York Giants. Uh, but really the guy who coaches quarterbacks when it comes to the NFL uh, at that position is his off season guy, Joe Brady or Ken Dorsey or Shea Tierney is not going to monkey with Josh Allen's mechanics. He doesn't get in there and go through specific drills that are going that get him away from what his personal throwing coach has him do. So Jordan Palmer still remains the most important quarterback coach for Josh Allen, and he's the private guy. 
Uh, and this is not, again, this is not a Bills thing. This is just kind of the way it is in the NFL. You look around the NFL, you see a lot of guys who are quarterbacks, coaches, who never played the position, some who maybe never even played football beyond the high school level. Again, it's these nepotism hires. You get a lot of the, you know, they don't necessarily uh, own the, um, the experience or a library or the, the mental uh, recall to be able to say, all right, back when I worked with um, uh, Mark Brunel, uh, this is what we did. This is how he, it doesn't work that way um, for whatever reason. These guys are more organizers, they're managers, um, they're shepherds, uh, and they help, uh, they help make sure that the quarterback room absorbs what the offensive coordinator uh, wants them to do. Uh, it's more organizational. Um, Jonah, let's take a quick break here um, and uh, talk about Amherst Pizza and Ale House. And it's something that we talk about on occasion, something we talk about pretty much every show. But Amherst Pizza and Ale House has been a sponsor of Tim Graham and Friends for a while. And uh, it's a good place to go, especially if you are uh, turning into a degenerate gambler. And uh, you want to track all of your various wagers through the uh, mobile betting uh, that New York State has now. You can go there for all the college and pro games, whatever sport you want, all the pay-per-views for the boxing, for the mixed martial arts at 55 Cross Point Parkway in Getzville. That's right off of Millersport Highway in the 990. Amherst Pizza and Ale House is recognized by ESPN.com as Western New York's top spot to watch sports. And weather permitting, got into the 40s today. There might be action on the patio because they do have heating out there. You can go outside, enjoy some fresh air uh, and the heat lamps and uh, have your beers out there on the patio if you're a, a rugged type and, and want to do that. A uh, lot of energy there at uh, Amherst Pizza and Ale House. So stop in or call for takeout and delivery, 716-625-7100. Again, 716-625-7100, Amherst Pizza and Ale House. You know, Jonah, speaking of uh, the mobile sports app in New York State, I'm not necessarily going to plug one over the other because they're giving away a lot of money to uh, radio and television stations and the local newspaper. Uh, a lot of sponsored content. But just taking your money, not giving you any back. Right. <laughs> I, I'm treading water. I'm treading water. Uh, I'm, I'm getting as much as I'm receiving lately. I had a little bit of a cold spell. Uh, but I may have reached a new low. Uh, I found myself um, looking for something to get me through breakfast uh, this morning and decided I needed to drop a couple of bucks on uh, Czech Republic versus Denmark in the uh, uh, hockey uh, in the Olympics at uh, 7.30 or 8 o'clock or whatever time it was. Uh, U.S. plays China tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. I don't know if that means I have a problem. Yeah, who are you going to bet on in that game? <laughs> well, here's the thing. I thought I'd take a, an easy few bucks uh, with the Czech Republic on the money line um, just to give me something to look up at the television at while I sip my coffee and do my emails and the other stuff that I do in the morning. And uh, Denmark wins. Denmark has never played in the Olympics before. It's very first Olympic game. It beats the heavily favored Czech Republic. 
So I have United States tomorrow. <laughs> this sounds awful to say. I mean, it's just sad. I have the United States giving uh, China two and a half goals uh, tomorrow morning. Hmm. Is that going to be a know. bad beat? It's the, hard uh, to say. The Denmark win crushing all the betters like yourself. U.S. is on uh, on road ice. You know, the, the, the China, the Chinamen are home. You know, it's. I don't know. I mean, who's to say? Throw the record books out when the U.S. meets China and in Asia in uh, when it's not on uh, home ice. Um, Jonah, UB football, uh, some. Fascinating news. Fascinating for me because I don't follow college recruiting that closely, but I kept hearing over the last month or two that UB was having a little problem with its offseason because of transfer portal and, you know, whatever. Uh, and things were looking good. And then I see uh, 24-7, uh, the website that ranks these prospects, these incoming classes, uh, have, have you be with one of the best recruiting classes in the country. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, they have lost some of their current players in the transfer portal, which everybody does now, but there was – maybe a little bit more of a flow out of UB over the last two seasons. And some of the good players that had committed to Maurice Linguist very early on, a few of them had decommitted and that tends to happen too, because most often they get later in the recruiting process and bigger schools and bigger conferences come calling and those commitments are non-binding. And sometimes you lose those kids if you're trying to get, you know, higher level athletes. But when it all boiled down, uh, you'd be at a 26-member recruiting class, and I believe maybe 24 of them were three-star player. No, it's a 24-player recruiting class with 22 or 23 of them being three-star three -star recruits, 10 of those being transfers. But it's the highest-rated recruiting class that UB has ever had by these metrics. It's the highest they've ever ranked in the MAC. They're, they're the best recruiting class in the MAC, according to this. I think they're something like 63rd nationally on that list ahead of Syracuse and some other power five schools. So it's, it's an impressive recruiting hall and it's a win in the recruiting game. And Mo Linguist was known as a excellent recruiter in his previous jobs throughout the country and in different bigger leagues in Texas, where, where recruiting is a much different game than it is up here in the Northeast. And so I think it's a good sign that, you know, the UB and the current staff is recruiting well and they're getting, a lot of the players that they want and, you know, just doing well on paper and recruiting. Now, does that necessarily mean that all of these players are going to be great players and that they're going to have a, you know, top, the best team in the Mac because they have the best recruiting class? No, because Lance Leipold never had a recruiting class rated this high. Obviously no UB coach ever did. Turner Gill, who did very well here and recruited some very good players, never had a class that on volume was rated this high uh, and they won games and they had good players who developed, they were under recruited or they just got the most out of the players that they brought to campus and got players that weren't highly regarded by the recruiting websites. But when they got on the field in Mac games, they were better than some of these higher rated recruits that other teams had. So I think for UB to really have a successful program, you need to blend those two things. You need to recruit, talented players and then they need to get here and develop and live up to their recruiting rankings because a lot of the higher rated recruits in the past for UB didn't pan out and a lot of the best players were 
lowly rated. Khalil Mack was not a highly rated recruit. And some of the very good quarterbacks that they had, Drew Willie was not that highly overrated recruit. Joe Licata, a record-setting quarterback. But when they got here, they fit the program and they developed and they played well. And I think you could see that with this group from UB, but it, it remains to be seen whether it actually plays out that way. Is there anybody in this recruiting class that really uh, catches your attention? Uh, yeah, there's one name. I think the first thing that caught my attention is the number of transfers coming from higher-rated schools. And everybody, because of the proliferation of the And let, let me say first, portal, like every, you're excited, and I don't mean you personally, but people are excited about all recruits at this time, like your draft class when right, your yeah. bills – even if the guy's the, your third, seventh round pick, uh, you're excited about him. You never hear um, a yeah, GM on draft day or out. a coach on signing day to not say, we got all the guys we wanted. Right. Uh, yeah. You never hear him say, you know, no, we, we actually missed out on a lot. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so. right. and, you know, when, when UB would have a recruiting class that was rated 11th or 12th in the MAC under a previous coach, they'd have a big signing event and say how much they loved all of the players. And sometimes got all the guys right. we wanted, but sometimes they were right. Sometimes these were players that didn't look like much on the recruiting press release. But then a year or two later, when they got on the field, they were good players. And Lance Leipold, he said this on our podcast when we had him on a year ago, that the way he looked at recruiting is you get your class 20, if it's 24 players, he says about a third of them are going to be what you expect. And a third of them are going to be better than you expect. And a third of them are going to be worse than you expect. And it kind of, depends what positions and who is better and who is worse and who gives you what you need. And that, that'll be the case with this class. Not, they got 10 transfers and they got you know, an offensive lineman that played at San Diego State, a cornerback Elijah Blades that spent time at Texas A&M where, where Moling was, has been in the past, and Florida. They got a wide receiver, Booby Curry from Arizona. They got a tight end from Dartmouth, a wide receiver from Louisville, a safety from Boston College. Uh, cornerback from Notre Dame so on paper that looks like you know you're getting really good players that are if not too good for the Mac going to be very good players in the Mac it, but transfers don't always work out that way sometimes there's a reason they trade there's always a reason they transferred and sometimes the reason that they transferred follows them to the next place sometimes they're just not that good sometimes they've lost their passion or confidence in a way that doesn't carry over sometimes these players are very good Mac players that were over-recruited and transferring down a level works well for them. Um, They're having but, trouble adjusting to life away from home. Yes, um, yeah. All kinds of things. Yeah, and, and I don't want to say that I think this is going to happen with any of those these particular players, but sometimes they're bad teammates or they don't work hard enough. They are very good players that were good enough to get recruited to these higher-level schools, but there's reasons they didn't work out at the higher level, and those reasons follow them at the lower level. and vice versa. But I, for me, the most notable player in the recruiting class is because of his position, because he's a quarterback and because he's a local from uh, Southwestern, Cole Schneider, who went to Rutgers. He played a bit there. He, he had some moments, but on balance, didn't light it up at Rutgers. But he's a good player. I think he's a player that you, if he would have came to UB out of high school, it would have been considered a very good get for UB. And it's considered a good get that he transferred here. He had an offer from Bowling Big Green. Big Ten. Buffalo. Yeah, absolutely. And he's an athletic player. He's, his father, I'm forgetting the first name, but his father was um, cited by 
Sirianni, the Philadelphia Eagles coach, is when he was back and coming up in high school, that he was a great player that he looked up to down in Southwestern. So he comes from an athletic family, an athletic background. I think he's going to be the starting quarterback this fall. That you know, there's going to be a competition. Kyle Van Trees is gone, so there isn't a returning starter. Matt Myers started games toward the end of the year, but I don't really think he's going to be the future of the position. There's some other younger guys in the mix, but I think Cole Schneider came here and he's going to be the starting quarterback for better or worse. And I think it could be, it could work out wonderfully, wonderfully for Buffalo. Um, and I don't think he's going to fall on his face and be a bad quarterback. I do think he's going to play and be good, but there have been in the past, some other quarterbacks transferring in from power five leagues or, you know, Cincinnati or I'm trying to think who, where all these guys that came from that didn't really always work out. And so, but I think this will, I would expect this will go well, if not, go somewhat well and then the other big win in the transfer portal was running back Dylan McDuffie deciding to stay and coming back and he's a Buffalo kid Isaiah McDuffie does that count in a in like when 24 7 does its uh rankings do guys who were going to who were assumed to be departures and they does that is does that count as a get no I don't think it does and it also doesn't there isn't a balance sheet that factors in how much you lost in the transfer portal against how much you gained I think there might be some other sites and analysts that that will kind of say who got better and who got worse in the transfer portal but that you could have gotten 10 really good guys but your roster's a smoking crater and there's only 17 other guys on it but you still could get a good grade because every even though everybody left right and and in another way that maybe it helps ub's rating and rankings is that if you have a lot of transfers coming from power fives those are going to tend to be more likely three-star players and, and a, if a max school has got 24 kids coming out of high school it might be harder for them to have a composite ranking that's as high as the class that has a lot of transfers uh, so it works that way as well but for Dylan McDuffie he had went into the transfer portal right around when the running backs coach left for Georgia Tech the way that I'd heard it I think that was maybe something that he was exploring or that was the thought behind going into the transfer portal that didn't materialize for whatever reason and now he's back. I was a little surprised he went into the portal. He had a very good year. He's a Buffalo kid. I think he liked playing for Mo Linguist and this team. Maybe he was a little, you know, somewhat in the same way as some of these people that followed Brian Dable. Maybe he was loyal to that running backs coach and wanted to keep playing for the running backs coach and didn't work out that way with Georgia Tech. But he's back. He had an excellent year last year. And when you're – with the way UB was a very good team, a top 25 team, and, and – then a coaching change and coming in, you didn't think they were going to be quite at that level, but you didn't think they were going to fall down to four and eight with the talent that they brought back. And so now, you know, with a full off season and kind of being able to tweak his staff and get his own recruiting class, I think there's going to be an expectation that this team does a little bit better, or at least doesn't languish near the bottom of the Mac like they did this past year. But if you're losing your best running back and your quarterback transferred out, that's, that's a lot of turnover and it's hard to be good and have continuity when you're recruiting a whole new team every year. But what are your thoughts on this, Joan? And I don't think that this is just a football problem. It's a basketball thing too, with the way the NCAA has loosened things up with the ability to transfer. It used to be, it was, you know, tried and true and it was chiseled in stone that you didn't know how good a college coach was until his fourth or fifth year, because he needed all his recruits to come in. Well, when you're, working with what is ostensibly free agency in the college game, how soon 
do you put the coach on the hook? Is this the year, even though it's just his second season at, at UB, is this the year we find out how good Mo Linguist is? Well, I don't know if Mo Linguist has that kind of accelerated timetable here with this job at this point in time, but I do think from a general sense. And that's yeah, not to say that they have to contend for a championship. I'm just saying, can he afford, can he afford to be four and eight again or, or three and nine? Does he, does it have to, do we have to see a big rebound of some way or at least a notable rebound? Well, if they're four and eight again, I don't think he's going to get fired, but there was a good amount of talent here when he took over. And I think with some of this, and some players did leave in the transfer portal, but they got some transfers that came in last year and this year and in a highly rated recruiting class. So I think the talent is, if not quite what it was when Lance Leifold left, pretty close and good enough to compete in the MAC. So if they're four and eight again, and especially if they're not competitive for the MAC East title, I think you do got to wonder about the game day coaching because the defense really regressed this past year and Moling, especially the past defense and Moling was, is a um, defensive back, was a defensive backs coach and a defensive minded coach. So you do have to wonder why um, they just didn't win enough games. And I think, because I don't think they're in a position where you're like, yeah, you got to give them three, four years to build the talent up here. They should have, enough talent to be at least middle of the pack competitive in the Mac. And they were competitive in most of their losses in the conference. But if it's another losing season, I think you have to question some of the game day coaching and the staff and what they're doing on Saturdays, because I would think, and I don't know all the talent on all the teams in the Mac, but I think they're still, if not middle, if not high up in the Mac, at least middle of the pack and above average Mac level talent. And so they should have an above average record in Mac level games. And you'd like to think that the field house, for instance, these are the things that were built not to necessarily sustain uh, a team that was going to contend year in and year out. It was to bring in kids in general or to get kids attracted to, you know, a higher, to be able to have uh, better kids to select from kids who want to come and play for UB. So even though things are down with the record, you still have to hope that Mo Linguist's ability to relate, uh, the facilities, the stadium notwithstanding, I mean, as awful as the stadium is, but I'm sure that that field house compared to 70% of the Mid-American Conference, probably, and, and the fact that you're in a major market, you're not in bumfuck Michigan, um, or Athens, Ohio, that you, you know, there's probably some things that Buffalo should be able to rely on and say, we're still going to get a really good um, uh, quality recruit here, or at least we should much better than just the fact that we, our program was good for a little while and we need to feed only off of that. The fact that we win, they have other things. Right. And I think that the recruiting and the talent acquisition and retention has been good that this is not a program that's bottoming out. I think when Jeff Quinn took over over many years ago, that was after Turner Gill about 12 years ago, the, the talent level dropped. And then as you covered, you'd be in its early days and no coach could have won with the roster that they had in the very no. early days of the match. Greg Service and Jim Hoffer and. Uh, yeah. And those were the coaches before Turner Gill and Turner Gill raised the talent level recruiting out of Texas and Florida, you weren't getting the first those kind UB, of players before the that. The first UB starting quarterback I covered became a priest. Well, 
mean, but that's not to say that other NFL, that they were going off to the NFL in, in subsequent years. I don't know what that means. Like the, the priest is a job, you know, but it's just kind of strange. But Joe, Father Freedy, Father Joe Freedy. Lance Leipold came from Division Three and never had a highly rated recruiting class. And I did question whether he would be able to recruit at the Division One level. And he recruited a lot of good players, but never had an impressive recruiting class on paper on signing day. Or at least at the end, I think the last class before he left did. But it took a while before he was getting a lot of three-star or even, you know, a high number of two-star players. Well, I think they had a lot of two-stars, but anyways. But Lance Leipold was excellent at developing players and coaching and getting the most out of them and winning with maybe less talent or equal talent. If you had equal talent, it seemed like Lance Leipold's team would win against the other teams in the MAC. I think right now UB has a similar talent level, if not higher, with this recruiting class and the transfers that they brought in. Uh, but the question is whether they're going to perform as well and develop the talent and win games. And, and I think to, to defend Molinguis and his staff, Molinguis came in very late in the game, both for assembling his staff That's and right. didn't retain a lot of coaches. I mean, UB could have promoted one of Lance Leipold's assistants and kept a lot of the staff together. And they didn't do that. And Lance Leifold pretty much took his whole coaching staff and a lot of players with them. And Molinguis got a late start in putting together his staff. He didn't have a spring. Lance Leifold ran the whole spring practice before he left for Kansas. So they were behind the, I'm mixing metaphors here, but behind the eight ball or behind the gun, behind the jump, whatever you want to say. Under the gun. Under the gun. And a late start. And I think that they didn't, when we went, when you go out there to media day and ask things like that, they didn't want to use that as an excuse, but at the end of the year, there was a lot of kind of whispering about how, yeah, you know, it was a tough situation to come in here and get that late start with putting the staff together and fitting the scheme to the players. And it just didn't seem like it worked out very well from that dynamic. Now you're talking about having a full off season and he's going to be able to run a spring practice and have a roster that he's put together a good number of it, or at least the players that are here are the ones that he wants to, to keep. Because a lot of times when players leave in the transfer portal, the coaches are holding the door open for that, um, especially when they're transferring down from other levels. But that, that's, that's an aside. But so now we'll see if having a full off season, and they did make a change at defensive coordinator, and will that make a difference? And just being able to fit the scheme to the talent that's here better and getting the players to learn the scheme and, and, have more confidence and continuity and ability to execute what these coaches want, you might just see two, three more wins simply based on that. Uh, so to roundabout answer your first question, I don't think Molinguis is on a hot seat where if they go four and eight again, he's going to get fired. Oh, no, no, I wasn't asking that. I I mean, yeah, I I think maybe I misphrased that or or maybe I – no, no, I didn't mean that he's got to win now. I just mean, is this where we is, is if you're a fan of UB football, should you still be in the, well, let's give them some time. Or do you think you can, it's fair to expect a a bounce back right away, as opposed to the way it used to be in college football, where a guy takes over a a program. Well, this wasn't a bad program, but generally when there's a coaching switch, it's because one guy wasn't working out and you got to give the guy time to get his legs and get a couple of recruiting classes right. and you know all that type of yeah. thing. Yeah, if they're not better this year, if they don't win more games or they're not as competitive in MAC games, there's going to be questions as to why that is because I don't think it's going to be because of talent or experience 
for the players that are here and the roster construction and, and just needing to give it more time, there's going to be questions that maybe I'm not even qualified to answer about why X's and O's and on the football field, the team didn't perform as well as it, it needed to. Um, I do expect that they're going to be better this year, but I don't know how much better. And, you know, sometimes you can be better and your record doesn't get better. A lot of coaches will say you are what your record is, but I think a lot of times because of luck and injury and things like that, it doesn't play out that way. But as you mentioned, sometimes a coach comes in and has a lot of freshmen and young players and they're building it up to be, and the expectations really aren't there to year three or year four. I don't think that's the case here. I don't even think that was the case in year one. Maybe it should have been. But I think a lot of people within the UB program and, and the fans outside of the program thought that they were going to keep the ball rolling. And maybe there'd be a slight step back from being a top 25 and the runaway winner of the MAC. although they didn't win the MAC title game, but in the regular season they were. Um, and nobody really expected them to drop back as far as they did. But they did. You know, they had some a lot of issues on defense, and that's maybe the most concerning thing because you have a defensive-minded head coach but now making a change at defensive coordinator, uh, maybe that shores things up there. Um, we're talking about college sports, and Jonah, you know these teams so well. I don't want to just uh, wrap up the podcast, even though we, we're closing in on an hour, but uh, it would uh, – uh, I got I'd all that. We're, we're talking college basketball. I got I'd be remiss to not ask if we can go around the, the big four. Uh, and, and any other teams in Western New York that you want to highlight, but you, you go to these games, you're out there. Um, what, um, what's catching uh, your eye in terms of any trend uh, that you see with any of these teams? Well, I think we should start with the most notable recent result was a game I wasn't at. And I wish I was, was Niagara beating Iona on Sunday. And uh, Rick Patino's team had been, I think they were 12 and 0 in the Mac and they were the first Mac team to, have an undefeated record like that uh, in more than 10 years since a Siena team that was borderline top 25 and won NCAA tournament games. And Iona was trending in that direction. This loss to Niagara might keep them, probably does keep them from being a top 25 at lid at large bid bubble team. But was Iona getting any votes at all? There, Iona was getting votes. I think six okay. voting points and the few more undefeated weeks might've cracked into the top 25. I was trying to tell Mike Rodak to vote him number one and say it was an accident because then they might be ranked and, and get some AP work for that, but he didn't fall for that okie doke. Um, and the, Iona's a very good team. They had a, a point guard named Joyner who was sick and he didn't play Friday night against Canisius and Iona won that game, but Canisius outscored him by 11 in the second half and as I said, coming out of that game, I think if there was three halves to that game, Canisius would have won because throughout the whole second half, they were better and they looked like they were coming back, but they were down 23 early in the first half, late in the first half and didn't have enough time to close that big of a gap. And maybe Iona was ripe for a loss. Uh, Mac teams, the best Mac teams always kind of struggle with making this trip up here, playing Canisius Niagara, regardless of how good Canisius and Niagara are, but especially when one or both of those teams are good. Something about the long trip and being here for three days, playing twice in three nights. It's very rare and difficult for teams to come up here and sweep Canisius and Niagara. And that caught up with Iona, whether it was the injuries and the illness, the road trip, or just being due for a loss. And Niagara played very well. And Niagara scored 80 points, which Niagara has been a competitive team at a lot of points this year, but their offense is, come and gone and they, they're the slowest pace team in the Mac. 
and they don't always score enough points to win games. And, and I think just getting 80 points against Iona was impressive. If they had lost 81 to 80, I still would have been very impressed with what Niagara did offensively in that game. And Niagara, they, they're a pretty good team. They have Marcus Hammond's the leading scorer in the MAC. They have some transfers that have come in that are good players, especially on offense. They're older. They're, I think they're Ken Palm Ransom is one of the top 20 or 25 most experienced teams in the country. But they've struggled to get over the hump. You know, right now they're 11 and 11. I think that's maybe the seventh time they've had a 500 record under Greg Paulus, and they've never been above 500. They've always lost that next game. So now they go, they got their next five games on the road, starting, I think, this first one's here at Fairfield. So they have the opportunity to be a winning team for the first time in Greg Paulus's third year, and that would be their fourth win in a row, which would be the longest win streak they've had in these three years under Greg Paulus. So there's a path you see of this team taking the next step and developing into a top tier Mac team. But I think people have expected this from Niagara at various points this season and, and last season and it didn't happen. So we'll see if they can keep this momentum going. And if that win over Iona portends to something down the line, or if it just tells us that Iona had a bad day and Niagara played well at home. Cause I don't necessarily think that you can look at that result and say, Oh, Niagara is a team to watch that they're going to win the Mac and maybe beat Iona at the tournament. I don't know if I expect that out of Niagara right now, but it was a result that makes you think uh, this Niagara team's getting better as the season progresses and they might be uh, a little better than their record. Looking at these uh, Metro Atlantic standings, uh, number that stands out to me, uh, Canisius is at four and nine at the bottom of the conference tied with Marist, but they are 0 and 12 on the road. Um, Reggie's teams generally play pretty well, uh, away from home. Uh, he, in fact, he's actually made some, you know, backhanded comments regarding his home gym, but they're eight and four at home. Oh, and 12 on the road. Um, Canisius plays some teams tough, but what, why the, why the bad record there? Well, you know, I don't know. I don't watch all of the road games. I know some of those non-conference games are tough to win on the road because of who you're playing and, and Canisius was struggling early in the year with injuries and some players being out with COVID and things like that. And as you mentioned, there's been years in the past where Canisius had a better road record than a home record. So I don't know if it's necessarily something about Reggie Witherspoon or the program or a trend that goes back beyond this year. Right. Um, maybe it has something to do with the current group of players play well, better. Let me, let me ask this, maybe because it's tied together. You just mentioned that Niagara's about to go on a five game road trip. Is there something with the scheduling this year that's made it made it difficult? Or well, I mean, what a team shouldn't be going well, playing five straight road games in in February, right? And that was something that wasn't originally scheduled. Went through? Those are games that were postponed and rescheduled. Gotcha. And the schedule kind of came together okay. that way. And did, did that play had maybe? some rejiggering with the schedule? I don't know if that's really to blame for any of their losses. I mean, Canisius has just been a funny team. You know, they played very well in that game at Bana. They ended up losing in the end, right. but they were winning for about 30 minutes in a gym that's very hard to win in. So that was a good road performance, even though they lost. They won that game downtown against UB. That counts as a – it kind of counts as a home game for them. Canisius is considered the home team usually when they play in that arena, but that's more of a neutral site. But And they were missing two of their best players in – came out and played very well and upset UB. That's kind of been the weird thing for Canisius this season is that 
when you expect them to play well, they don't. And when you expect them to roll over and not play well, they respond to that. So it's been a hard team to predict and to follow and to, to find trends. You know, they really looked awful in that first half against Iona. It looked like they didn't even belong on the floor with them and that they were not going to – I don't want to say that they weren't trying, but they looked like a team that wasn't trying. They had, Iona had no turnovers in the first half, so they had to question how well Canisius was playing on defense. And in the second half, they forced 11 turnovers and it, Iona could barely get the ball into their offense before Canisius was stealing it and going and scoring at the other end. So – it hasn't been a good year for Canisius, but if you watch them play the number of times that I have, you see signs that they can be competitive, and I think they could pull off. I thought they had a chance to be the team that was going to upset Iona if, if they had gotten off to a better start, but they didn't. But I think you could still see Canisius pull off maybe a surprising road win at some point this season or at the MAC tournament, even though they haven't won away from home yet. Buffalo it's definitely not the be... crowd at the Kessler Center. That's not what's been the difference for Canisius. No, it's not giving – they're not uh, carrying them to victory there at the Kessler? Yeah. I mean, maybe they're used to playing in a half-empty gym at home, and when they go on the road and there's more than 150 people there, that's what throws them off. UB seems to be treading water uh, in the middle of uh, the Mid-American Conference. So I guess I should say, you know, doing okay, well, but – I, I wouldn't say that because I do think they're going to, they're above the middle of the pack. I think they're going to finish around third or fourth. And as of a couple of weeks ago, it looked like they could be contending for one of the top two spots, but then they lost at Toledo and they lost the home game against Ohio. And those are looking like the top two teams in the Mac. And I think Buffalo might be the third best team in the Mac or record wise might finish behind Akron and fourth and even behind Kent state, depending on how things shake out. But I was at the game last night, and UB couldn't have played better. They had their best offensive game of the season. They, they went in by 30-plus points. They won by more than 30 points. It was their biggest lead that they've had in a MAC game all year. And it's a lot like the way they finished last year. They were 4-4 four and four in the MAC, I think they were, and then they won 8-9 and nine down the stretch and got to the MAC title game and ended up finishing. They didn't make the NCAA tournament, but they had a good record and got to the MAC final, and it was considered a – somewhat successful season and this team was four and four in the Mac and now they're they won their last two and they won the last two by big numbers and they got they're going to be favored in their next I think seven games if you look at the schedule and so I think they could have another strong finish like that now can they get over the hump against Ohio and March 1st they host Toledo who's the best team in the conference right now I don't know but it does seem like I think they're going to be in that mix is one of the last three or four teams standing in the back and have a chance to win that tournament and go to the NCAA tournament, but they're not, they were the favorite by a lot of polls and projections coming into the season. And they're definitely not the favorites anymore, but still a team that could compete for that Mac title. Well, let's wrap it up then Jonah. And uh, what's going on with St. Bonaventure? Well, speaking of teams that were the favorite and are not the favorite anymore, right. Well, let me give me a second here. I want to call up the standings and make sure I get it right. But this was, you know, they started the year in the top 25 and, and I was out there covering them for the Associated Press. And I think a lot of people were paying a little bit closer attention locally and nationally to St. Bonaventure uh, when they got off to that 5-0 and start. and They won the Charleston Classic. And now they've certainly fallen from that rank. They're not 
a team that's on the bubble anymore. They're not a team that's going to be getting top 25 votes. But they're and they're not. I guess where I was going with that is even if they were even if they were a little overrated as a top 25 team, or even if that those expectations were just too high for any mid-major team to really live up to them, you still thought that they were one of the favorites in the Atlantic 10, and that they'd be right in that mix, and that they'd win enough league games to maybe put themselves in position to be an at-large team. The Atlantic 10 is usually a league that gets two or three teams in the tournament. It's looking like probably a one-bid league this year. But now you look at it, and they're sixth in the conference standings at five and four. They were four and four before winning against Fordham last night, 13 and seven overall record. So not a bad year. And, and in a normal year, the athletic, the Atlantic 10's a tough league and, and Bonometra doesn't dominate that year to year, but they did last year. And you thought with everybody coming back and the talent that they had and the hype around the team and Mark Schmidt being such an excellent coach that you thought they were going to perform better than they did this year. And maybe they finished strong and, there's a narrative about the season about how they went through it and, and discovered something about themselves and they were at their best in February and March, but not in January and December, but just record wise and, and where they're positioned in the conference. And the, you know, they're not in these mid-major top 25 polls anymore when at various points earlier in the season, they were one of the top teams in those polls. So it's been, I'd say for, for some basketball fans, whether you're a Bonham fan, a UB fan, or a general local college basketball fan, it's been a little bit of a disappointing season because you thought St. Bonaventure was a surefire NCAA tournament team that might contend to be, you know, the hottest mid-major team in the country. And you thought Buffalo was the favorite in the MAC and maybe not quite as good as St. Bonaventure, but almost at that level. And you're going to have two local teams going to the tournament or contending to be in the tournament. Now they still could both win their league and make the tournament, but both have slipped a little bit from that status. And Niagara's playing well, but they're only 500, and Canisius is below 500. But then another way, I mean, Bonaventure, Buffalo, and Niagara, if Niagara wins their next game, will have winning records. And there's been plenty of years when three of the four local teams didn't have winning records. Or I remember a couple of years ago when all four of them had a winning record, that was pretty notable. So based on expectations, it's been a little bit of a disappointment. But if you disassociate from those preseason expectations. We were talking on the old radio show that there could be three Western New York teams in the tournament. Right, right. And, you know, there still could be. I don't think anybody – I think Niagara beat Iona, but I don't think anybody's beaten Iona in the tournament. And if anybody does, it's probably going to be Monmouth, I think is the only team that maybe has the horses to do that. And uh, you got to wonder if anybody can really beat Rick Pitino in a tournament when he's – you know, standing up and coaching, unlike at Canisius when he barely stood up to hold the game. But, um, and Buffalo could still win the MAC tournament and St. Bonaventure could win the Atlantic tournament, Atlantic 10 tournament. I don't think that these other teams that are ahead of them in the standings are that much better than Bona, but Bona's just not playing as good as it's capable of. I think some of that might have to do with some of the injuries and lingering effects, and maybe uh, Kyle Lofton and Ashuna Shunier aren't 100% maybe something with their rhythm and chemistry. And last night, Mark Schmidt said they got their mojo back, which implies that they had lost their mojo. I don't necessarily know why or what that entails, but they were a better team last year coming back with pretty much the same roster. They're not better. It might not be that much worse, but they're not better, but they still could finish strong. I mean, it's all about what you do in March 
And secondary to that, you want to be playing well in February to get into March, but it's really never about what you do in January, December. It is when you're trying to be an at-large team that that's on your resume and that matters. But if you have a bad December and a bad January, but a good February and a good March, that's a successful season for teams at this level. That's right. That's right. Well, Jonah, thanks for giving us uh, the roundup on big four basketball and also UB football. Right. We, we ran out of time to preview the Sabres game tomorrow night or the class a boys swimming championships. I'm covering on Saturday. Bronstein enterprise. I'm sorry. The new Bronstein times never sleeps. Um, maybe at Bronstein enterprises, they would maybe not cover the, the swim. No, that's probably the Sabres game. Oh, but no, no, at, no. at the new Bronstein times, it's everything. The swimming is a big moneymaker for Bronstein Enterprises. There's a lot of swimmers, a lot of schools, and a lot of local papers that want some reports from that event on Saturday night that are probably going to go to UB and then over to the swim meet, bring my flippers and my fins. All right. Is your laptop waterproof? Let's do, let's do a couple minutes here on the Sabres because I think a lot of people don't pay attention to the Sabres until the bill season's over. Right. And so I want to ask you, but maybe you should ask me, but what do you think about somebody who's coming and you're covering the Sabres next week, right? I might be. I might. Yeah. So what's your outlook coming into maybe a Sabres team that you haven't paid attention to all year? What are you looking for and expecting to see from this team now that the bills are out of your, in the rear view mirror and it's all about the Sabres. What the hell do I know? Um, (laughs) I, same thing I did when I covered the team for seven years. Um, and I, it served me well. I think it served the readers. Well, I never once went to that rink thinking I knew what the fuck I was looking at and you can be a fan and, you know, everybody can sit in the press box and say that the, the coach should have done this and this player's not trying and this call was missed and yeah, but that's, that was never my job. My job was to go into the dressing room. See, that's a hockey term dressing room the room, and it's get the stories the and get the, get the information, have the players uh, and find the, the most meaningful explanations and stories uh, that I could get from uh, the coach and the players and the players on the other team and the people at the arena who know things. I mean, that was, that was always my, forte was learning things. Um, I wasn't uh, a know-it-all. And so I am not going to show up uh, at the rink after not having covered the team in 10 years uh, and, and act like I know it all. That's, that's, that's not how I operate. I didn't operate it back then when I knew what the hell was going on. And now I certainly don't. Yeah. And well, in, in my role, but a fresh set of eyes fresh. though, I will say this, and I've seen it before. Uh, uh, sending somebody who's uh, a little who's unfamiliar uh, often, and I, not just sometimes, but often creates uh, pretty good stories because it's a fresh set of eyes, and I haven't experienced that eyes. Um, but uh, in my ears, and some people I talk to that maybe other people don't talk to, and maybe I'll maybe I'll find something out that's worthwhile. Well, I'd be curious maybe to ask you on this podcast what you think after having seen them play and if you know anything that caught your eye or impressed you if they remind you of older Sabre teams at various points in development because really this season is all about growth 
and the young players and, and coming up in Don Granado's system and whether they're better at the end of the season than they were at the beginning of the season. It doesn't I remind me about signs of that. It doesn't remind me of any Sabres team I covered for a couple of reasons. Number one, this team scores goals. Uh, they're not great. Uh, they lose a lot, but they at least score goals. They're entertaining. The teams that I covered were either really good uh, and scored goals or were really good and had elite goaltending and defense. And then there's that middle chunk where it was the bankruptcy era and Dominic Hasek and Michael Pekka were gone. And it was Marty Baran was the goalie. And they went three years or four years or so where they just couldn't get anything going. Um, they still had some aging players on the roster that they couldn't move on from. Uh, and it just wasn't working out heading into the lockout. Um, maybe, maybe the team right before the lockout before Ryan Miller arrived, maybe, but even those teams had some flash to them, a little bit of flash to them. But really what opened that up was coming out of the lockout and having uh, the new rules and the game was wide open and all of a sudden the, play, the, the players were there and the prospects were emerged. And so I think really to factor in what the Sabres have going for them, you, you have to factor in their prospects. And it's, it should be noted that uh, the Athletic did its, uh, its yearly review of prospect pools and the Sabres finished number one again. Uh, so you're talking about guys who are not on the team yet. Um, but and they have a lot of young players on the team that are 20, 21, 22 years old that are showing good signs. I mean, if you are a Sabres fan, even paying close attention, I think you could see a lot of things that you like for the future. The present hasn't always they're been losing, but at least they're fun, they're scoring goals. Well, right. And there was a game a couple of weeks ago, they lost to the Dallas Stars 5 4, and they had the lead and they blew it late. and if you're really looking at it in the present, that wasn't a good result. But all the four goals were scored by either young players or Alex Tuck, who they got for Jack Eichel, who I think might be the captain next year. And mm -hmm. they were all impressive goal scorer goals. Rasmus Dahlin, Jack Quinn. And even though they lost that game, they were impressive goals that weren't lucky kicking it in off your skate or whatever they were. Even that's illegal, but you know what I mean. They weren't greasy goals. They were hockey plays. and, and and they've had so many injuries, especially with goaltending. So it's been hard to really evaluate how good this team is because I don't know if they've had a full lineup since day one and they really haven't had a healthy net. And they're getting to possibly at that point. I don't know if they'll be able to stay healthy, but they're getting closer. Uka Pekalukanen's back practicing. He'll probably be playing again. And Craig Anderson's back in the lineup. And I think that's what they wanted the goaltending situation to be from the start of the season. So you might see a team, I don't know if they're going to win games, but you might actually see the full team and see what kind of potential they have here coming out of the All-Star break. Yeah, maybe that'll be what I write about. In fact, I'll sit down with John Vogel and maybe I'll just get creative and write about covering my first game in forever. I and, think what you uh, should do is go how much try, different it was. Go try to sit in every empty seat in the arena and see how long that takes you. If you can get from one empty seat to every other empty seat before the game is over. I think I could probably get my preparation H uh, expensed uh, for that night. Jonah, always a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks to everyone for listening to Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is more than just a full service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem solving skills. 
CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara community through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2020 and 2021 to keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400 and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you.